like uh, flattening out the rough spot or filling potholes so that the path was smooth and easy. Um, such a man were known as foreigners or heralds. So that is what John is doing in this chapter, being the forerunner of Jesus, just like the angel Gabriel said, and just like the prophet Isaiah said in verse 3. There has not been a prophet in Israel for over like 400 years. So the Jews has, have been waiting for a long time for the Messiah and salvation, especially freedom from the Romans' control at this time. So John's presence caused great spiritual excitement among the Jews. So as a foreigner of, um, as a foreigner of Jesus, he delivered the news to the Jews. The good news is the king is coming. The bad news is you are not ready. So what you need is a baptism of repentance. So scholars are unsure of the exact origin of baptism, but the Jews practice baptism as a traditional act of purification. So in the book of Leviticus, the Levite priests were commanded to perform a ceremonial washing in water as a symbol of a spiritual cleansing before and after performing their priestly duty. So even though it was not specifically called baptism, it does emphasize the importance of holy ceremonial cleansing before God. So toward the beginning of the Christian era, there was the custom of baptizing proselytes. The Gentiles who wanted to become Jews called proselytes. It is if a Gentile wants to become a full-fledged Jew, he has to go through a three-step process. The first was circumcision. And after circumcision, the proselyte went through baptism. Uh, in the baptism, he was stripped of all his clothes and went into water, went into the water naked, and dipped himself under the water and made sure to fully immerse his entire body. Uh, I saw we have newcomers here today, right? Can we do this baptism today? Yeah. Oh. No. <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't have to do this anymore? <laughs> After their baptism, then they will allow access to the sacrifice in the temple. So even though John's baptism carried this um, connotation of cleansing with it, it was a little bit different. First, instead of the individuals immersing themselves, John immersed them. That is why they called him John the Baptist. Second, John's baptism is a one-time rite. Unlike the Levitical washing, which were repeated, for repeated purification. A one-time baptism implies death to an old way of life and rebirth to a new way of life, just like proselyte baptism. Third, uh, John baptized the Jews, not the Gentiles. The Gentile convert had to have a baptism because 
they came in from the filthy pagan nation, so had to be ritually cleaned before they were acceptable to God. But the Jews thought, hey, we are chosen holy people of God, and they, we are, already have a relationship with God. So John's baptizing of the Jews means that they place themselves on the same level as the Gentiles, which means a lower level. Like, oh, I'm no better than Gentile before God, and I have no special holiness before God, or I need to get right with God. So you can imagine the humility that baptism requires of Jews. A theologian, Peter, said, John is treating his fellow Jews as if they were spiritually Gentiles, calling them to turn to God on the same terms they believe God demanded of Gentiles. Fourth, therefore the baptism of John was especially a baptism of repentance. Then, what does repentance mean? The word repentance is hard to define, but the concept of repentance comes from two Hebrew words. The first one is nakam, means to have a deep breath, grieve, or change mind. Notice that all these involve deep emotions. The point is, these deep feelings lead to action. So the word nakam refers to the intense feeling of recognition, recognize, recognizing your sin, and change your mind. The second word is shuv, literally means to come back and turn around. So the word shuv refers to the turning from sin and then turning toward God. Earlier we read that what the angel Gabriel said about John in Luke. Notice the word bring back to God and turn to the righteous. That is the meaning of repentance. So when we study Samuel this year, we saw King Saul remorse his sin and cry several times. And in the New Testament, after betraying Jesus, Judah also felt sorrow for his sin and regret. But they didn't turn around and turn toward God, which is not repentance. So therefore, the true meaning of repentance is that to grieve about our sins because it's an offense against God, and confess our sins, and then change our life by turning the direction of our life and our heart so that we become reoriented toward God. In Acts 26.20, Paul proclaimed to Jews and Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So repentance is an action word rather than a feeling word. So John's point here 
It's not, oh, you are a sinner, so you have to repent. His main point is, you have to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then, what is kingdom of heaven? First of all, kingdom of heaven is not referring to heaven. The word heaven refers to the origin of this kingdom. It is the place from which the kingdom is coming, not a destination to which we are going after our death. So Mark, Luke, and John all use the word kingdom of God. But Matthew is the only one used the term kingdom of heaven. So there are many different theories about reason why, but we don't know for sure. But no matter why Matthew used the term kingdom of heaven, the one thing most scholars agree upon is that kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are identical terms. It simply means that God's reign breaks into human history and brings restoration to God's creation. The interesting thing is that John did not explain what the kingdom of heaven was. He just simply announced it. It was near. And no one questioned, what is kingdom of heaven? So what that implies is that the Jews knew what John meant by the kingdom of heaven. It was the kingdom which had been promised by all the Old Testament prophets. So because of the strong connotation of the word heaven and kingdom of heaven, so I would like to use the term kingdom of God because they are the same term instead from now on. So surprisingly, the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is not found in the Old Testament. However, the concept of kingdom of God did exist, such as uh, God's kingship or his sovereign rule over his creation, especially in Psalm, <coughs> in Psalm and Isaiah and Jeremiah. So when we study Samuel, we learn that God promised David that the royal line would continue and that the kingdom of Israel would be the sign of God's presence and rule. So the kingdom of God was the national hope of Israel. However, due to the um, division of Solomon's kingdom after his death, the Babylonian exile and the return from that exile and the absence of kings who reign with security and continuity, apocalyptic idea began to emerge. They think that the coming of God's anointing one, or the Messiah, from the line of David, would come, uh, who would bring about the kingdom of God in the last days. The kingdom would come with prosperity for the faithful, and judgment for the enemy of God. This is two-stage eschatology of Old Testament. Here, how time is going. This is present age, this is age to come. The present age is characterized by exile, oppression, sickness, sin, 
and death. It is temporal. Then, boom! The Messiah comes. <laughs> this is the, then it becomes the time of God's rule, which characterized by the presence of God and His Spirit, freedom, health, peace, and restoration. It is eternal. This is the Messianic kingdom the Jews were looking for. By the time John the Baptist began his ministry, the apocalyptic hope like this in coming of God's kingdom has become a well-established idea. At that time, they were under the Roman control, so they were waiting for the establishment of God's rule to kick out the Roman rulers. So when John announced that the kingdom was near, Jesus, the Son of God, was already incarnated into human history. The king himself was already on the earth, which means the kingdom of God was already on the earth. But Jesus was not bringing the Jewish concept of kingdom. That's why people got confused. And later, John the Baptist doubted whether Jesus is the true Messiah whom they are waiting for. In Matthew 11.3 and Luke 7.19 said, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom has arrived, but has not arrived in fullness. So this is called the three-stage eschatology of New Testament. This is present age, this age to come. And boom, Jesus came. Then he taught, he died, he resurrected, and ascended. He already brought the kingdom, but it is not the full kingdom. There is an overlap of the two states between the two coming, first coming and second coming. Matthew and John live, and we are all living in this present age. We also belong to age to come. That's why there's a tension and even conflict between these two realms. So we see the miracle of God's power but also see the power of evil. I call it frustration time. <laughs> this tension continues until Jesus' second coming. So in this sense, the kingdom has both present and future dimensions. This is the already and not yet concept of the kingdom. If you read any commentary about New Testament, they always talk about this already and not yet kingdom. And we will know more about this as we study further. Okay, so let's see verses 7 to 12. But when he saw many of Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
He acts is already at the roots of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So prayer to John, uh, no prophet in Israel have ever demanded baptism. Therefore, John's baptism was a truly unusual thing in Israel, and something that they have never seen, which attracted huge crowds. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up. The scripture didn't say why they showed up, maybe uh, merely out of curiosity or self-interest, who knew? But John knew that they didn't come for repentance. So he strongly rebuked them. So who are these Pharisees and Sadducees? At the beginning of the Christian era, Jews were divided into four groups. These were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Jealous. Since New Testament mentioned a lot about the Pharisees and Sadducees, so I will explain them side by side for each comparison. So Pharisees. Pharisees mean the separate ones. Separate from whom? Pretty much everybody who was not what they were. They thought that the Jews had to remain a distinct group of people, separated from everyone and everything else. They were ritualists, formalists, and separatists. And senses means the righteous. They were the liberal among Judaism. They were rationalists and free thinkers and skeptics. The Pharisees were mostly middle-class laymen, business owners, and leaders of the synagogue. Most Pharisees were rabbis, and rabbis did not receive any payment for their teaching, so they were expected to have a secular job instead. So number one job of Pharisees is carpentry. So do you remember Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee and a tent maker? So that is how he made money, making a tent. On the other hand, the Sadducees were, were extremely wealthy upper class aristocrats and the high priests who had great authority over the activities at the temple. The Pharisees were orthodox believers who held strictly to the law to maintain purity. But Sadducees mostly focused on temple procedure, protocols, rituals, and liturgy. The Pharisees believed in the scripture and oral tradition. The Sadducees only believed the first five books, the Torah, and rejected the many oral traditions. And Pharisees believed in miracles, and the Holy Spirit, angels, and 
resurrection from death. But the Sadducees did not believe in miracles, spirits, angels, resurrection, or life after death. But can you believe these were the high priest party, yet didn't believe all these? You can learn more about this theological dispute between the Pharisees and Sadducees in Acts 23. So since uh, Pharisees think the priests didn't do a good job, so they took the uh, priest role. So they were in competition to the priestly leadership in the temple. Despite the uh, mutual hostility, the Pharisees and Sadducees served together on the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Even though the Pharisees were a minority in the Sanhedrin and held a minority number of positions as priests, the Pharisees seemed to control the decision-making of the Sanhedrin because they were very popular and their movement was very popular. So as we see, these two groups represented the leadership in Israel. They had many conflicts and different beliefs and agendas. So they opposed each other. But it is amazing that they set aside all their differences and united together to oppose Jesus. Why is that? They both have different reasons. So why was there so much friction between Jesus and the Pharisees? Actually, Jesus and the Pharisees' value are pretty much identical, but their definition is far apart. Jesus redefines their concept of righteousness, purity, and defilement as expressed within our heart, not just outside. But the Pharisees make them as a, a formal external ritual. Like Jesus, the Pharisees were seeking the will of God and the renewal of the whole of Israel. But they differed in how this was to be achieved. Because of these theological reasons, the Pharisees think Jesus is a threat. But the Sadducees oppose Jesus for a different reason. They want to preserve the status quo because if there is a social change, they have nothing to gain. They have money and power, so they don't want to change. So every generation and every country, if you have money and power, you don't want to change. So they think Jesus is a threat to their social and political status because Jesus can disrupt social status. They wanted to maintain regional peace and the only way to do that at the time was to cooperate with Rome. So both these two leadership groups have different reasons to go against Jesus. Now third group, the essence. The essence is the third group of the Jews whom are not mentioned in the New Testament. They were Jewish monks or hermits who mostly lived in the desert. That's why we don't know much about them. 
the essence uh, community of Qumran saw itself as the only true Israel. The members of the community live a disciplined life um, dictated by the regulation and the strict system of values. But it, it was their copying of the scripture that left us with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Fourth, the Jealous. They are militant anti-Roman Jewish political and religious groups. They were convinced that the Romans had to be driven out by a force of arms. The Pharisees think that, oh, we keep the law and purity, and then God will come on his own time. But the jealous think, no, we start with resistance, and then God will come. The main money-making business for the jealous is robbery. So they hide in caves, come out drunk. So when Jesus was crucified, there were two men who were crucified along with Jesus. They were jealous. Some translations said they were thieves, but the word can also mean insurgents. The Romans did not crucify a mere thief. Crucifixion was a political tool which was set at the entrance of the road to send a message to everyone that this will happen to you if you oppose us. So Pilate and the high priest crucified Jesus because they think Jesus is a political revolutionary like the jealous who might disrupt their society. Okay, so now what John is telling these two leadership groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, is that they have to change their thinking and force security Otherwise, they will face God's wrath. The Jew has always thought that because they are descendants of Abraham, they have a special relationship with God and a deep sense of spiritual security for their salvation. But John's point is that just like the unclean Gentiles' baptism, all descendants of Abraham, even the leaders, drop this false sense of security and need baptism of repentance if they are to face the coming of the kingdom of God. So what John is saying is that uh, persons are like uh, fruit-bearing trees. The fruit <coughs> is not, <coughs> excuse me, not the change of heart, but the acts that results from it. So no one can really turn around from sin and turn toward God without some results appearing in their behavior. So those bearing good fruit are spared, and those not bearing good fruit are thrown into the fire. Uh, speaking of the wrath of God, I really love how Dale Brunner defines it. <clears throat> the wrath of God is not 